Hi, this is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. Six weeks after the American withdrawal from Afghanistan, can we say the United States has really concluded its forever war? Today, we have a pair of reflections on war and American understanding of it. Senior editor Matthew Boudway speaks with Andrew Basevich on the problems with American policy and with writer and Marine Corps vet Phil Cly on so-called humane warfare. Those conversations are coming right up on the Commonweal Podcast. Hi, Matt. Good to have you here on the Commonweal Podcast. Hi, Dominic. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Andrew Basevich? Well, Andrew Basevich probably needs no introduction to our readers because he's been a longtime contributor to the magazine, where he's written about everything from Henry Adams to Bing Crosby to American foreign policy, his specialty. He's the president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, and he's a critic, I think it's safe to say, of the American foreign policy consensus in Washington. And uh, that's basically what you uh, and Andrew talk about today, picking up on a column that he wrote for us in the October issue. Right. The, the column is called The Forever War Continues, Biden Should Rescind the Carter Doctrine. And it's about American foreign policy in the wake of our defeat or our withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh, but it turns out also to be an article about the policies that led to the war on terror, which go back farther than I think a lot of people suppose. So he's, he talks about its roots in the Carter administration and in our commitment to the, the Persian Gulf as a sort of center for American commitment abroad. Okay, so why don't we take a listen to that conversation? Andrew, thank you for talking with us this afternoon. Oh, glad to be with you. My first question is about the, uh, the main argument of your piece, despite President Biden's recent declaration at the United Nations that, the, that for the first time in 20 years, America is not at war. You argue in your piece that the forever war didn't really end with the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and didn't really begin in September 2011. You say it actually dates back to January 1980. What is the significance of that month for our foreign policy? That's the month when uh, Jimmy Carter gave his State of the Union address, within which he promulgated what came to be known as the Carter Doctrine. And the Carter Doctrine specified that the Persian Gulf was a vital U.S. national security interest, or to put it in very blunt terms, a place that we were willing to fight for a place where we would not let another power uh, gain a preeminence. We've been involved militarily so long in that part of the world that I think most of us have forgotten that prior to 1980, the Persian Gulf was a very peripheral interest, particularly in terms of U.S. military commitments. So that all began to change after Carter's speech. In essence, the national security apparatus began to gear up for war began to take actions that would enable the United States to intervene militarily in the Gulf. And lo and behold, those interventions soon began to occur. Why do you think this, this episode in U.S. history um, is not well known by people born after Carter's administration? I think most Generation Xers or millennials would say that Carter was one of our uh, least hawkish recent presidents, and they associate our aggressive posture in the Middle East with both President Bush's. Why do you think this the, the Carter Doctrine is something that foreign policy experts obviously know what it is and talk about it, but it doesn't get the same kind of attention in the U.S. press? Well, I think you've probably put your finger on it. It seems to be at odds with the general understanding of President Carter's 
outlook and the policies that he inaugurated. Whether fair or not, Americans tend to think of Carter as a weak president, as a failed president, uh, and therefore the Carter doctrine seems to be at odds with that general impression that we have. I should emphasize, it, it wasn't as if President Carter intended to embark upon the forever war. He was not a particularly bellicose president. The Carter Doctrine stemmed from the convergence of a set of events that in many respects, I think, backed Carter into a corner. And the Carter Doctrine was the response to the predicament in which he found himself. What were the elements that comprising that predicament? Well, a very important one was the Iranian Revolution, which overthrew the Shah in a heartbeat, taking away an, an ally valued by the United States, perceived by the United States as someone who would ensure a, a stable Persian Gulf that would be favorable to the United States. Revolution takes him off the plate. Not long thereafter, we have the beginning of the hostage crisis in which Iranian revolutions take over the U.S. embassy in Tehran. That episode was misperceived at the time, but nonetheless, the way it was perceived uh, made it imperative. It produced enormous pressure on Carter to, quote-unquote, do something, either to punish Iran, certainly to try to, to free the hostages. And crucially, in December 1979, in other words, one month before the promulgation of the Carter Doctrine, December 1979, the Soviets invade Afghanistan. Again, radically misinterpreted at the time, but the interpretation at the time was important. And the interpretation was that, oh my gosh, with the United States having a weak president in the White House, with the United States still humbled to a sense, in a sense, uh, by the Vietnam War, and the, the perception, again, I would emphasize wildly overstated, the perception was that once the Soviets succeeded in, in pacifying Afghanistan, they would be tempted to continue to march into Iran, ultimately continue to march into Saudi Arabia. The contingency that was never going to happen, but it appeared that the Soviets were aiming to take over the Persian Gulf. And then finally, we have to remind ourselves that at that time, the United States was significantly dependent upon foreign oil. The perception was that our prosperity and therefore, by extension, our freedom was dependent upon have, having access to Persian Gulf oil. Now, suddenly, as a consequence of the Iranian Revolution and the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, all of that seemed to be at risk. Hence, Carter's response. Right. Now, you say in your piece that we, know, we need a Biden doctrine to revoke and replace the Carter doctrine. What should such a doctrine consist of? Well, one element of a Biden doctrine would be to repeal the Carter doctrine, right. to say, hey, look, no, the Persian Gulf is not a vital U.S. national security interest. It's not a place that we should be gearing up to fight for. It's simply not that important. What would be the basis of that argument? Well, number one is we're not dependent upon foreign oil. The United States is the biggest producer of oil in the world. And second, and probably more importantly, our well-being, our long-term well-being, actually is dependent upon us reducing our dependence upon fossil fuels, wherever they come from, in, in order to preserve the planet. So this is not a place we should be fighting for. And all of those preparations, the bases, the war plans, the previous intervention, the continuing interventions in places like Syria, 
uh, and, and Iraq, the Horn of Africa. All that needs to be unwound, I think. That would be the basis of a Biden doctrine that would actually then begin to move U.S. national security policy in a direction that was more relevant to our actual security. So you've talked about how the forever war is the consequence of um, foreign policy mistakes. To what extent is it also the result of military technology, the development of drone warfare, and the ability of the, the U.S. military to strike at foreign targets without as much risk to, to U.S. personnel? It's a big deal. Uh, it, but it, the, the fault, and I, w- I would call it a fault, the fault is not simply a fault of the military, but also the civilian leadership. Indeed, probably a fault of the media more broadly, or, or of activists, those parts of our polity that are gung-ho to see the United States take a very forceful role in trying to solve problems out there pretty much in the wake of the Cold War, a broad-based fascination with military technology suggested to many people, again, incorrectly, wrongly, stupidly, suggested to many people that we were moving into an era in which force could be used with precision and with certainty with regard to outcomes and with far fewer lower costs than had traditionally been the case. Now, as you and I speak, the ultimate symbol of that has come to be the missile firing drone. So that the U.S. military personnel in Nevada, I think, is where they operate out of, uh, can be controlling drones over Afghanistan or over Syria or over wherever. It can release a missile, kill somebody, no, no threat whatsoever of American casualties. And that that capability would result in or has resulted in enabling the United States to use force more effectively. All the evidence says that's nonsense. It is certainly the case that advanced technology uh, has enabled us to kill very efficiently when we want to kill people. It doesn't guarantee we're killing the right people, doesn't guarantee that we're not killing noncombatants, but we can kill very efficiently. But the larger lesson, I think, has to be with, okay, we kill a lot of people, but to what degree does that result in us achieving our political purposes? War is a political act. If, if you go to war and don't achieve your political outcome, it doesn't really matter if you can declare victory and have a victory parade. It's a waste. And I think the record, certainly, of, of the post-9-11 period offers plenty of examples of U.S. military technology being employed in fascinating ways, but time and again, we come nowhere near uh, to achieving our political objectives, our political purposes. And it turns out that the costs still end up being enormous. You know, the, no- the notion that here's the cheap way to wage war turns out to be an illusion. And the last question has to do with Afghanistan. We're more than a month out now from the the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, uh, which many in the media characterized as as a defeat, but also a loss of national honor and even a betrayal of our allies in in Afghanistan and elsewhere. In your view, is this the right way for us to be thinking about it now? Well, it certainly was a failure. As a matter of fact, in his testimony the other day, General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, testimony before Congress, described the outcome as a strategic failure. That seems to me to be about, was the United States military defeated? No. Did the United States fail 
to achieve its purposes, its missions? Absolutely. So I think I think strategic failure is probably a good description, and it was costly. And, and sadly, my guess is that there will be great reluctance either within the military or perhaps in our political establishment to inquire too deeply into why that strategic failure occurred over the course of 20 years. Nobody wants to really dig into that because I think the answer is would embarrass the military, would embarrass both political parties, would embarrass members of the media who have been cheerleaders for these kinds of interventions. And to me, it's more than disappointing uh, to see that the response to the collapse of our policy in Afghanistan tends to take the form of of, of partisanship. Oh, it's, it's Biden's fault. Well, Biden owns it, but so do several of his predecessors, and so do any number of generals and admirals. We really need, I think, a serious accounting of why this 20-year-long war ended in failure, but I don't think we're going to get that accounting. Andrew Basevich, thank you again for being with us this afternoon. So Matt, maybe you can tell the listeners a little bit about Phil Cly. Yeah, Phil Cly is also a contributor to Common Will, like Andrew Basevich, but he's best known as a novelist. He wrote the novel Missionaries and a short story collection titled Redeployment, which won the 2014 National Book Award. He's also a Marine Corps vet who served in Iraq. And that fact turns out to be of special relevance to the most recent piece he wrote for us in the October issue, a review of Samuel Moyne's new book, Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. Phil and I ended up talking a little bit about the history of the anti-war movement and how there are sort of two parts of it that ended up diverging in an important way many decades ago. There was the anti-war movement that was committed to ending all war, pacifism. And then there was another part of the anti-war movement, which turned out to be more interested in, in making war more humane, less cruel. And so the category of war crimes became its special focus of attention. And there were a lot of important achievements on that front over the years. But in the meantime, the horrible nature of war itself was obscured by some of those achievements. And we forgot that even in the best of cases, war ends up being quite cruel to those who fight it, along with those who don't. Okay, well, why don't we uh, take a listen to the talk between you and Phil? Phil, welcome. Great to be back on the uh, Commonweal podcast. I thought we'd start by talking a little bit about the history of these two movements, the anti-war movement and the movement to make war humane. I think many people would assume that these are two aspects of the same movement. But Moyne argues that they've often been at odds with each other. Why is that? Well, yeah, and he's got the, he's got the quotes to back it up. On the one side, you have the pacifists, you have the people who are trying to create international institutions for preventing war, for moderating disputes between nations so that they don't go into war. I mean, it's funny, one of the early examples of this is from an American who's the, the son of one of our founding fathers, who thought that we could have a sort of larger kind of federation that would do for all states what the Constitution had done for the American states, right, to, to try to prevent conflict. And then on the other side, you have folks like the Red Cross, right, where famously the founder of the International Committee of the Red Cross goes to the Battle of Solferino in 1859, and he ends up tending wounded, and he's just horrified by the conditions in which soldiers were suffering and dying. And he thought there has to be a better way. We can create an organization that will provide medical aid to the injured, advocate for better standards, and that will 
ultimately work with militaries, right? I mean, one of the things that, that Moy notes is that the Red Cross was enlisting militaries in the project from the very beginning. And the there are folks who would claim and from the outset that if you make more and more humane, eventually you'll abolish war, right? But early peace activists thought that this was morally fraught. Bertha von Suttner who was a very kind of influential global celebrity and who authored a hugely popular anti-war novel called Lay Down Your Arms. She suggested that the humanitarian discourse was a trap at, at the feet of those who were going against war. And Moyne traces the sort of different efforts of these two movements. One is which in order for its legitimacy needs to get militaries on its side for the you know, Red Cross to work. It needs militaries to allow them to, to function. And the other one, which is much more concerned with international organizations creating domestic antipathy to war. And that was very much a vital movement in the 19th century and then only becomes more so following World War I. So the sort of disaster, the inability of these movements to stop World War I creates even more of a sense of urgency for having something like that in, in the aftermath, given the horror and atrocity of World War I. And the, the seminal figure for Moyne here is Leo Tolstoy, right, who became very cynical about humanitarian discourse, the idea of sort of ameliorating war he compared to the idea of ameliorating slavery, right? So like there were moves like the 1826 Slave Code to ameliorate slavery, to make it less cruel and thus more acceptable, Right. And if you made slavery less obviously cruel, you would have less sort of images and stories that would arouse people's ire. But it was a moral abomination no matter what. And Tolstoy thought that war was, was similar. He wrote, where violence is legalized, there slavery exists. And Tolstoy's pacifism seemed a bit, shall we say, almost sort of naive or too idealistic in the 19th and 20th centuries. But Moyne, as he traces the rise of humanitarian war, especially following Vietnam, when the United States military really starts to make major efforts to actually fight more according to international humanitarian law, he sees more and more ways in which Tolstoy proved prescient. You, you and Moyne quote uh, somebody with a d double barreled name, First Sea Lord John Arbuthnot Fisher, who at the Hague... <laughs> Very British yeah, name. At the Hague Convention in 1899, he said, the humanizing of war, you might as well talk about humanizing hell. And that seems like a pretty good summary of, of Moyne's own position. But you go on to write that humanizing war may indeed be like humanizing hell, but there are different levels of hell after all. And, and you point out that the that Lieber's Code, the, the rules of warfare promulgated during the Civil War, did establish that rape was a war crime. And you say... This might not be much. It's also not nothing. And also allowed black women to bring charges. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think that. So Moyne has a, a great degree of cynicism about humane codes of conduct. Right. And he points out that Lieber's code allowed for all sorts of things and that militaries totally flouted these rules constantly throughout the 19th and 20th centuries whenever it serve their purposes, right? Lieber's Code comes out during the Civil War. In World War II, we're firebombing cities. We are in Korea, four million people die, half of them civilians, right? 
For Moyne, it's not that Moyne is opposed to humanitarian codes of war, right? I mean, in a sort of interesting way, a lot of the debate around this book that has sprung up seems to mistake him for thinking that, that he thinks we should let the gloves off and adopt the, the Sherman approach, which is, you know, war is hell. There's no, no point in trying to make it less cruel. And the worse it is, the sooner it'll be over, right? That's not his argument, right? Though that was an argument that he, that many people in the 19th century, both militarists uh, and pacifists alike made. But rather, he's, he, he wants to draw our attention to the fact that once war happens, right, so much horror is allowed by war, right? And once war happens, continually, militaries have done whatever they wanted, right? And found justifications for it. And there's unimaginable civilian strife, civilian casualties, horrors visited upon soldiers and, and, and civilians alike that are permissible within war. And so I think what, he's, what he wants us to do is to consider the weight on which we put such things, because the vibrancy that he sees in the anti-war movements in the 19th and early 20th centuries and the actual sort of achievements of them, and he notes some of the areas where they helped avert war, he feels as though the current age of humane war has, has successfully sapped that vitality, undercut real efforts to combat war, and furthermore has allowed us to elide thinking about what precisely is happening during war and what the moral problem with it is. Because we convince ourselves that if we're humane enough, if our targeting is precise enough, and of course the targeting is never as precise as we pretend that it is, then we can wage a kind of perpetual conflict with consciences clear. And he doesn't think that we can. He writes, much greater suffering was visited on more people through illegal war than illegal war crimes, in part because so much is legal once war starts. And uh, to bring it up to, well, to more recent years, you point out that there were 10 times as many drone strikes under Obama as under his predecessor, Bush. I think that would still surprise a lot of Americans to hear that because they think of Bush as the, as the belligerent president and Obama as the more moderate president who had committed to a less idealistic but also less aggressive foreign policy. The, his account of the Obama administration and the sort of legal wranglings within the administration is fascinating and was revealing to me because I had had this notion of Obama as coming in. He's the darling of the anti-war movement because he had opposed the Iraq war. But he was sympathetic to the you know, war in Afghanistan. He launches a surge of troops, but he withdraws troops from Iraq. And then during the rise of ISIS, he expands presidential power in terms of war making by asserting that ISIS falls under the 2001 authorization for the use of military force. And so he can wage war on ISIS without having to, to go to Congress. And in fact, he begins sending troops into Iraq while claiming that he's not sending troops into combat and while claiming still that he had ended the war. I actually once heard Susan Rice in 2015, while we were very deeply engaged with troops on the ground in the fight against ISIS, claimed to a room full of active duty military and about a dozen severely injured troops that one of the administration's proudest accomplishments was ending the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, right? And somebody in the audience snorted in laughter. What Moyne points out is that e even from the very beginning of the Obama presidency, as, far, as early as, as 2009, some of the folks on his legal team are arguing that the global war on terror necessitates 
a, a fairly unrestrained executive and a deterritorialized war. What does that mean? It means that from the very beginning of his presidency, Obama is advancing legal arguments that will lead to the idea that Obama can strike anyone he deems a threat, right? And the Obama administration, you know, normally you're supposed to only be able to strike somebody if they are an imminent threat. Well, Obama's lawyers start arguing uh, that the, for the existence of things like uh, elongated imminence, right, which is an interesting philosophical concept to let alone a legal one that this war can happen anywhere. So, you, you know, it's not restricted to particular battlefields and that associated forces of the Taliban. So the initial authorization for the president to fight had been intended for the president to fight the Taliban uh, and Al-Qaeda and associated forces, basically the people who who struck us. But over time, associated forces grew on to mean almost anything, inc including groups that hadn't even existed at the time, including groups with only very tenuous connections to Al-Qaeda, who there's no real reason to think that they pose any kind of threat to America, right? But certainly at the present moment. And so that process happens very early on in the Obama presidency. But what is interesting that Moyne points out and that sort of very much bolsters his argument is the Bush administration had expanded presidential war making, right? It asserted the president's ability to both do things that violated humanitarian law, right, to torture and such, but it also asserted broader presidential scope in terms of war making. In the early Obama administration, he was clawing, he was pulling back from the, some of the violations of humanitarian law, but was actually furthering and further entrenching these ideas about a kind of unrestrained ability to make war, to kill people around the globe, right? And he's being celebrated as having ended the worst excesses of the Bush administration. Well, for Moyne, it's not that he supports the moral abomination that was America torturing people, right? It's that one of the worst excesses of the Bush administration was unrestrained war making, right? And the consequences of that we can see around the world. This is one reason why in more recent years, the war on terror began to be described as the forever war or the forever wars, because there seemed to be no clear limiting principle. And it just went on and on without many Americans knowing exactly where it was being fought or how. And we seem to have decided that if we're doing it in a sort of quote unquote humane way, then it doesn't count as war, right? When we pulled troops out of Afghanistan, Joe Biden gave a speech where he announced the end of the war. And then in the same speech, he said, we will maintain the fight against terrorism in Afghanistan and other countries. We just don't need to fight a ground war to do it. We have what's called over-the-horizon capabilities, which means we can strike terrorists and targets without American boots on the ground or very few if needed. So what he's saying is we're no longer at war, but don't worry, we're still going to be killing people regularly, right? And that seems to be what we're doing. And we're not just doing that in Afghanistan, right? There are about seven or eight other countries where we know we're doing it. And yet what ultimately it means is there is there's a population overseas that we're not really treating as a political entity that we need to deal with in any kind of way, right? We see it merely as the site where bad guys spring up who we then kill, right? I thought we'd end by talking about another piece uh, you wrote for another publication. This was shortly after the United States 
withdrew from Afghanistan. You wrote for The New Yorker a great piece, which I recommend to our listeners, titled American Purpose After the Fall of Kabul. And you wrote there, 9-11 unified America. It overcame partisan divides, bound us together, and gave us the sense of common purpose so lacking in today's poisonous politics. And nothing we have done as a nation since has been so catastrophically destructive as what we did when we were enraptured by the warm glow of victimization and felt like we could do anything together. My question is, this time not about how cynical we should be, but maybe how pessimistic. In a country as various and divided as the United States is today, is war the only thing left that can be counted on to give us a sense of that shared common purpose? When you say it like that, it's a very dark line. <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, this is the, you know, this is the William James, right? The moral equivalent of war question, right? And one thing about that is probably worth noting is it didn't have to go that way, right? You know, our leaders made decisions about where to take that feeling of common purpose, what to do with it, where to channel it, right? Where not to channel it, right? Not to channel it into a sense of civic renewal, right? We're supposed to go shopping, famously, after 9-11. That's how you defeat the terrorists. You go shopping, right? But a time when I think people really wanted ways of responding in a productive way. And I think that that impulse is in many ways still there in Americans, right? That sort of civic impulse of trying to band together with other Americans and, and change the country for the better. But I feel like in, in a weird way, it's almost like the, the, the disappointing, you know, the kind of failure and cynicism that the wars have brought on by the kind of just uh, catastrophe that has unfolded. You know, we've sought that thrill of purpose in... In, in attacking each other, right? And so that it's just hard not to think of January 6th, right? And these, it's like insane delusional idea of retaking the country and conquering the bad guys. Like now our enemies have become each other, right? All of that kind of common purpose is soured and our kind of rage and search for enemies has turned inward. I, I don't think anger is a bad emotion, Right. There are things in modern American political life and in our military policy that ought make you angry. I am certainly angry about some things, as you could probably tell from some of the things that I've written. And I think that's the correct emotion. I think it is how that gets channeled, right? And how that, whether you allow that to function as an excuse for dehumanizing those around you. Well, Phil, thank you again for joining us. It's been a pleasure as always. Thank you. Thank you. Andrew Basevich's column, The Forever War Continues, appears in our October issue, as does Phil Klei's essay, Sops to Humanity. The October issue also features a photo essay from Solmaz Dariani on rural Afghanistan, an article from Pope Francis on the unfinished work of Vatican II, as well as an essay on UFOs and extraterrestrial encounters by Santiago Ramos. This is Dominic Preziosi for the Commonwealth Podcast. Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.